Today's Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25. That's Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, the passage that Leah read to us. We're dealing with the, we started last week with a series on discipleship in Matthew's gospel. So we're looking at a number of portions in Matthew's gospel concerning what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So last week we looked at Matthew chapter 9 and we asked the question, how do you become a disciple of Christ? And uh, Matthew told his own story. So the author of Matthew's gospel actually told his own story there in Matthew chapter 9. If you missed that, do pick that up on the website so that uh, you can stay with the flow of the series. This morning uh, or next week, we're going to have a look at the life of discipleship, and uh, that's in Matthew 11 from verse 25. But this morning, we're having a look at the cost of discipleship. And we're looking at uh, Matthew 10 from verse 16 to 25. And just before I pray, I'm going to read in addition to that from verse 34 to verse 39. Just some good news. Uh, one of our ministers, many of you, all of you know David. David Kubedi and his wife Pusiletsa, uh had a baby daughter on uh, Wednesday. And uh, she is called Ania. And she weighed in at 2.9 kilograms. I'm told that the mother is healthy, the baby is healthy, and even the father is healthy. So let's give a big hand of celebration. So we do want to encourage you to have children because it is the first principle of church growth. Uh, so uh, uh, you breed them. So uh, anyway, there we go. I'm going to, in just a moment, uh, pray, and I want us to especially pray for uh, the schools where they've had the drownings in the last uh, 10 days, two weeks, and especially to pray for those families, and also for those schools who are going through difficult times. I want to pray for all our schools in our country as well, that God will help us as a country to provide the best possible education for our young people. 
And can I also ask you to pray for our schools? We have two schools which fall under our church, Christ Church Midrand. The one school is Christ Church Preparatory School and College that uses this property. So this property is multi-purpose, and uh, we use it for our church. We use it for our school. And uh, the school here goes from grade triple naught to grade 12. We have 640 pupils. And uh, then we also have a school in Tembisa called Nakapila School. And um, this school has been going for 22 years. And the school in Nakapila has been going for 10 years. And at Nakapila in Tembisa, we have 350 children. Now, we have wonderful staff and principals and management. We have wonderful systems and structures. But uh, even when you have all of those things in place, uh, children can still do stupid things. And adults can still do stupid things. So we need to pray for all our schools, but do pray regularly for our schools uh, here at Christ Church and at Nokopila and for God's special hand upon us. Uh, it's a big responsibility running a church, um, not a church, well, yes, a church, uh, but also a school. And uh, I happen to be the chairman of both those schools, so we have great responsibility. So do pray for us and for God's provision and God's protection, and that ultimately those who come to our schools uh, will come to know Christ, because that's actually the bottom line for both our church and our school. So let me read from Matthew 10 from verse 34, and then I'll pray as we come to God's word. Matthew chapter 10, and I'm going to read, Leah read from verse 16 to 25. I'm just going to read from 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do want to pray for the education in this country. Lord, you know better than we do the great needs that we have. And we do pray, Lord, that in your mercy and your kindness, you may work in our government and work in our schools and raise up leaders, teachers, and principals who may really lift up the education in our country, which is such a great, great need. Father, we especially pray for the two schools in Gauteng, which have um, had great tragedies in the last two weeks. We pray for those families who, have, who are grieving the loss of a child. We pray for those schools, Lord, the children, the staff, the parents. And, Lord, we can't even imagine some of the struggles that there are. Father, we pray for our two schools, and we thank you for your hand upon these schools. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for uh, providing us with uh, the resources and the people and the teachers. But, Lord, we do ask for your protection and your hand upon our schools. And we pray, Lord, that those who are are responsible, Lord, that you may give them great wisdom, that they may uh, see that our schools are well run, and, Lord, ultimately, that those children may not only get a good education, 
but that they may come to know Christ. Father, now we pray that you may speak to us through your word and that we may hear your voice as we read the Bible. <clears throat> and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> Last week we started our series in Discipleship Matthew chapter 9. We looked at the question, how do you become a disciple of Christ? What must you do to become a Christian? And we looked at the story of, of Matthew. This week we're having a look at the cost of discipleship. What does it cost? What does it mean? What will it involve? What kind of life will I have if I am a disciple of Christ? So if you are not yet a Christian, either here this morning or listening on the website, you need to understand what the cost is. And you need to understand what it will mean to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are already a Christian, well, tough luck, it's too late. Um, uh, let me remind you of what the territory is to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. As I was uh, working through chapter 10 this week in preparation for this morning and other passages in Matthew's gospel, what, what struck me afresh was that, that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's not what you expect. So let me give you a couple of examples. Remember last week, who did Jesus call to be part of his inner circle, part of his cabinet, part of his NEC? Well, it wasn't the chief rabbi. It wasn't the chairman of the South African Council of Churches. It wasn't the bishop. No, he was actually a traitor. He was a Jewish man collecting taxes from his own people to give to the Romans. He was an impimpy. <laughs> it's the upside-down kingdom of God. Have a look at verse 21. If you belong to Jesus, it will possibly divide your family. Now, our first thought is that if Jesus comes into my life, well, it's going to unite our family. Well, very often that is the case, and it's wonderful when it is. But very often it's not the case. It divides your family. Verse 22, if you belong to Jesus, you will be hated, says Jesus. Well, our first thought may have been, if I come to Jesus and I become a messenger of love and forgiveness and grace, well, surely people will love me. Surely I'll be popular. Well, Jesus says, no, you'll be hated. Verse 39, notice, if you find your life, you find your life, that's your New Year's resolution. You're reading the latest uh, self-help book. Well, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. <laughs> but if you lose your life for me and the gospel, you will find it. Chapter 20, Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Well, I mean, that is totally upside down. We want more servants to serve us. And Jesus says those who are great are those who serve others, which is why it's part of our DNA. So let's remember, as we talk about the cost of discipleship, we must remember that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's counterintuitive. It's counterculture. It's not PC, and it's entirely unexpected. So remember that as a theme that runs through uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 10. All right, there are two points I want us to have a look at uh, as we work through uh, both these passages. Uh, the first is that there's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus, and we'll spend most of our time on that point. And then right at the end, we'll have a look at that uh, there's a reason to pay the cost. 
So there's a cost to pay, and there's a reason to pay the cost. So let's dig in straight away. There's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus, and the cost is twofold. I'm sure you picked it up. There's a cost in terms of the world, and there's a cost in terms of your family. So let's have a look at the world. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in terms of the world? Let me read again from verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So when Jesus says to Matthew, Matthew, follow me, that's exactly what Matthew does. And now in chapter 10, Jesus says to Matthew and the other disciples, he says, well, this is the cost. This is what it will mean if you follow me. And the first thing to notice here is that Jesus assumes, he assumes that those who follow him will be rejected. They will be persecuted. Some may even be killed. Jesus assumes, notice verse 24, that just as the master who is Jesus is persecuted and maligned and rejected, so will his servants be maligned and persecuted and rejected, and that's us. Notice verse 24, a disciple, that's us, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household, which is us? Now, the word Beelzebub, they were calling Jesus Beelzebub. That's a word from the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. It means Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung. The word wasn't invented by William Golding. Um, no, it was a derogatory word. And um, it was eventually used for Satan, for the devil, so you remember in the Gospels that when Jesus did a miracle, the Pharisees said, you are from Beelzebub, your power is from the devil, from Satan himself. So Jesus is saying here, yeah, if they maligned me and said my power was actually, actually from, this, from the devil, well, don't think they're not going to malign you. What happened to the master will happen to the servant. What happened to the teacher will happen to the disciple. Don't be surprised. Don't, don't be surprised when your colleagues at work, your family, neighbors, the media, when they call you evil or intolerant or judgmental or divisive or arrogant. Well, that's what they did to me, says Jesus. So don't be, just, don't be surprised. That's part of the territory. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Just on Thursday, I was meeting with uh, one of the men from our church family, and uh, we were talking and praying together, and, and um, he has a senior position in his company. He's, he's the top performer, and um, yet those above him hate him. They make his life uncomfortable. And the reason is he won't be one of the boys. He won't do the kind of things they're doing or speak the language they speak. The reason is he's a Christian. And so Jesus says, verse 22, don't be surprised 
you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't think that God has abandoned you. Don't be surprised. No, it's part of the territory. In fact, it's a sign that you're a Christian. Now, Jesus has already taught on that. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. In the Beatitudes, you remember the very last Beatitude talks about this. So Jesus says, I want you to know that this is common knowledge. This is the territory. This is what it means to be one of my disciples. It's not going to be easy. So people who say that Christianity is a crutch actually have no idea what they're talking about. None at all. Notice what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you. I mean, that's upside down, isn't it? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's not because you are doing evil things. No, it's all kinds of evil things that they are falsely claiming that you are doing. So we need to be careful here. Sometimes people uh, can be awkward. They can be a pain in the neck. Sometimes a Christian can be awkward, a pain in the neck can be socially dysfunctional, and so they justify people opposing them because they say, I'm being persecuted for Christ's sake. They're not being persecuted for Christ's sake. They're being persecuted because they're obnoxious. So if that's you, you're getting what you deserve. That is not what, that is not what Jesus is talking about. He says, on my account, for my sake, you are being persecuted. So don't be surprised. Back to Matthew chapter 10. I think the most surprising verse here must be verse 16. Have a look at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So it's quite surprising because we would expect Jesus perhaps to say, I'm sending you out as soldiers. I'm sending you out as supermen, woman. I'm sending you out as king's kids sending you out as revolutionaries. No, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, we are, we are, there may be one or two, but we are not farming people, but we can all imagine. I mean, a sheep amongst wolves. Well, you're in constant danger, aren't you? And you have no capacity for self-defense. You're totally dependent on the shepherd. So what Jesus is telling us here. And once again, it's counterintuitive. He is saying Christians, disciples of Jesus as a group, are not meant to be a power group. We're not meant to be a political machine, a political party, or a revolutionary organization. We're not primarily soldiers and fighters. And we're not allowed to be haters. So what can we do? Well, I think Jesus gives us some instructions. As sheep amongst the sheep, uh, wolves, we are not without, we're not without the instructions of Jesus. The first thing he says, you can't be soldiers, you can't be haters, but you can be smart. So he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now he's saying that not just when you persecute it, but just in general. We need to, as Christians, we need to be as innocent as doves. That means that we, that we don't do underhand things. We're honest, we're truthful. But we are to be as wise as serpents. So you may be a sheep, but you don't have to be stupid. 
You don't have to think like a sheep. It means we need to be shrewd, honest, but shrewd. We need to be cunning. We need gospel cunning as a Christian. Think about what, what Royden was talking about, mission. Uh, engaging, uh, reaching out, evangelizing. We need to be cunning. We need to think. How do we do that? It's not easy. You can't stand on your desk at work and say, hear ye, hear ye. Matthew chapter 10. Okay? You will get a written warning. Um, no, we've got to be cunning. We've got to be shrewd. I've mentioned this before, but we need to... Here's one idea. There, there are hundreds. But we need to use prayer. Now, I'm not saying you just walk up to people and say, can I pray for you? But let me give you a couple of examples. Sometimes I'm asked, so I'm a minister, so people expect me to pray, and we at a function, maybe a family function, maybe some other function, and uh, there's Martin, let's ask him to pray. They may know you're a Christian and ask you to pray. I remember the once when, uh, many, many years ago, when my parents were still alive, and we had a, Christ a Christmas uh, lunch, and all the family was there, and my dad said uh, he was going to say grace before the Christmas lunch, and my brother David David said, no, Dad, you don't need to do that. Ask Martin, you don't buy a dog and bark yourself. <laughs> so I know my place in the family. But there are times, there are times you will be asked to pray. So think about it. Don't just say, Lord, bless this food, amen. No, think about it. Say, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love. We thank you for sending your son to rescue us. We thank you that you've come to reconcile us to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for this food. Amen. Okay? So you don't need to, you don't need to give a three-point sermon with five side roads. Okay? No, you can just use the opportunity. Perhaps you're visiting someone who's sick in hospital or at home. And uh, just before you leave, you take their hand and you say, do you mind if I pray for you? Now, I've, I've done that hundreds, thousands of times. No one has ever turned me down. Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, no one has ever turned me down. Uh, I think some of them think it may be a lucky charm. So, um, but use the opportunity. And when you pray, share something of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your great, great love for us. And you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And Lord, I pray for my brother here. Lord, you know his circumstances. We pray for the medical staff. We pray your special hand of healing upon him. Will you be with him? Amen. If, what have you done? You've made it quite clear you're a Christian. And secondly, you've shared something of the gospel. Make use of those opportunities. I think I've told you before, our neighbor next door behind me here, uh, we bought that property eight, nine years ago for our school and our church, and the owner of that property was Simon Hobday. Some of you may remember Simon Hobday. He was a golfer, a prof professional golfer from Zimbabwe, and um, I knew his children, his grandchildren. Uh, some of them came to the school here, but I didn't know Simon well, and then we went through negotiations to buy the property there. And it was a very big thing for Simon because he'd been there many, many years. And it's a beautiful property with beautiful trees. And he was now leaving this property. So on the last day, when we went there, the family was there. And uh, one or two of the wardens were there to sign the document. I could see that Simon was tearful. It was very emotional. And I just thought to myself, why don't I just... Pray. So I said, Simon, this is a very, very big occasion. Do you mind if I just pray? 
Now, now I understand it's easier for me. I'm a, I'm a pastor. People expect me to do those kind of things, but you can also do that. And so I prayed. I've never shared the gospel with Simon. I'd known him a couple of years, but I'd never been able. There was no opportunity, but here was the opportunity. He was tearful. He was leaving his loved property. I said, can we pray? So we prayed about the property, and I brought in something of the gospel. We've got to be cunning. We've got to be shrewd um, to share the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. We are to be wise as serpents, be it opposition, be it persecution, be it evangelism. The second thing that Jesus says when we are persecuted, notice verse 23. The first is we need to be smart. So, so we've got to be smart. Uh, second thing is, sometimes you may need to flee. So we picked that up in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, just, just a quick note. End of verse 23 is a little bit tricky. What does he mean? You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Is he talking about the second coming? Is he talking about his return? I think that is most unlikely. I think what he is saying is, even before the coming of the climax of my mission, which is my death, resurrection, ascension, even before that, let alone after that, even before that, you will be opposed. You will be persecuted. Well, that's precisely what happened. When Jesus sent out the 12, when he sent out the 72, at times they were opposed. They were persecuted. And Jesus said to them, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. So it seems that verse 17, Jesus is primarily talking about the immediate future. Before his death and resurrection, what will happen in Palestine to Matthew and the other disciples. From verse 18, he's now talking about the rest of Christendom. The next 2,000 years, he's talking about us, he's talking about Christians living in 2020, that we will face governors and kings and Gentiles who will oppose us. Now, <clears throat> let me talk just a little bit about the fact that some of this language seems a bit strange to us, especially in terms of the world, because we are not being flogged. And uh, we are not going to prison. We're not being killed for our faith. And we need to be very thankful. We really do. We need to be very, very thankful for our Constitution because our Constitution guarantees freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of association. And those are great freedoms. And one day we may need to fight for them. But they are great freedoms. And, and, and we need to thank God for our Constitution. But there are many, many Christians throughout the world, millions, who do not have that privilege. And the words that Jesus talks about here are real to them right now because of the persecution they face. Now, the best, the best uh, resource that I know of is a website. It's an organization called Barnabas Fund. Make a note of it, Barnabas Fund. And it's a great website and an organization, and they alert the Christian church throughout the world of what's happening to other Christians who are especially being persecuted be it in the West or in Muslim countries. And so I try to go to that website every week or two and see what's happening to brothers and sisters around the world because I live in a privileged position. These things are not happening to me or to you. 
but they are very true. They are very real to many of our brothers and sisters, and we need to pray for them. Let me read you just from the timeline. So I went under the timeline, and I just noted some of the things that have happened. There are many, many others. January 21st, 2020, that's this last Tuesday, Boko Haram announced that they had killed Pastor Andimi, a church leader in northeast Nigeria. And then they gave the, gave the details. 13th of January, 2020, three Christian primary school teachers were murdered by Al-Shabaab at a primary school in Kenya. The previous week, the same Al-Shabaab group had killed seven Christians, including four children. 13th of January, 2020, at least seven Christians killed in North Cameroon by Boko Haram. Two church buildings were burnt and 20 children were kidnapped. 13th of January. Boxing Day. What were you doing on Boxing Day? 26th of December, 2019, the Islamic State in West Africa province posted a video of its soldiers beheading 10 Christian men and shooting another in northeast Nigeria. That was Boxing Day. September 2019, according to strict new laws in a northern Indian state, and we've seen some of that on... uh, on the news media, pastors could face up to seven years in jail if found guilty of evangelizing. June 2019, at least eight Christians remain on death row in Pakistan because they will not renounce their faith in Christ. And most of them have been there for years. Unknown date, 80 Christians were murdered in North Korea for owning a Bible. So we are highly privileged living in a free society, and we need to make hay while the sun shines, while the window is open. But we need to pray and understand what Jesus is talking about here is not just something historic, something otherworldly. No, this is happening today. We need to pray for them. So go onto that website, Barnabas Fund. Sign up for their newsletter so that we can pray for our brothers and sisters. They're just like us, brothers and sisters. They believe in Jesus. They, may well, they will struggle with the same emotions and fears that we have. So we need to pray for them. Pray for God's hand upon them. But let's have a look at verse 23. What do we do when we are persecuted? Well, one option is that we flee. That's what Jesus says. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now, we need to look at that verse and, and look at it with great wisdom because here he's speaking to the disciples, the 12 certainly. He says, here in Palestine, when you are persecuted in certain towns, you are to shake the dust of your feet and flee to the next and preach the kingdom. But then in the book of Acts, God intentionally and specifically leads Paul to go to Rome to preach the gospel in Rome, which was the capital of the empire, the superpower of the world. And in Rome, Paul loses his life. He dies. So there are times, so we need wisdom. We need to ask God for wisdom. We don't live with quite the same dramatic circumstances, but they are not unknown to us because we need to make decisions. There are times you may need to flee. So you may be a Christian. You come from a Muslim family, and they are making threats. That can be here in Joburg or Durban. Well, you may need to flee your family. 
That's what you may need to do. You may be in a workplace which is very, very hostile to your Christian faith, and your nervous system, your just emotionally, psychologically, you are just not coping. Well, I would say to you, I think the wise thing is you need to get out. I think first find another job and then get out. <laughs> but, but you don't have to stay there. You may, be, you may be the only Christian in your family. Perhaps you are in an abusive marriage relationship. You're the only Christian. And the behavior and the abuse is so ungodly. Well, you may need to flee. There are times we need to flee. But of course, there are other times, like with Paul, that God calls us to stay and not to leave. So there are no doubt millions of Christians in Muslim countries who may have the opportunity of fleeing but decide that for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom, I'm going to stay. Someone needs to share the gospel. You may be living in a communist country, and you may feel God saying you need to stay here. I mean, take Mozambique. Mozambique is a communist country. It's the only country in the world where in the flag is a rifle. Now, most people in Mozambique work for the government. It's a socialist country. Do you leave? Well, of course not. You can be a Christian in that context. In fact, there are two, there are two young men from Mozambique. They are lieutenants in the army. Uh, they've gone through university. They're lieutenants. Uh, and uh, they've, uh, they became Christians. They've completed Explore. I want them to go to GWC. But at the moment, they're working for the army. And I say, well, stay there until God opens up a way for you to get theological training. Perhaps you're in a company. Or, uh, most companies are not uh, um, Christian. Many companies are not especially moral. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to leave. Uh, you may want to leave, but it doesn't mean you have to leave. Perhaps, uh, perhaps, you, work for, perhaps you work for Steinoff. I'm sure there's still some people working for Steinoff. <laughs> or KPMG, or McKinsey, or perhaps you work for a political party, or um, perhaps you work for ESCOM. Um, <laughs> now, you, now you laugh. Just a couple of weeks ago, I, I was speaking to one of the young ladies Sunday evening service, and I asked her what she does. She says, she's an accountant. I said, where do you work? She says, I work for a corporate. I said, which corporate? She says, well, a big corporate. <laughs> and, uh, then, under her breath, she said, I work for ESCOM. <laughs> well, we need Christians. I mean, we desperately need Christians in ESCOM, don't we? We need Christians in all kinds of organizations. Perhaps they're the only ones who are going to tell the truth or perhaps blow the whistle. God doesn't say we've got to leave. No, you must be in the world, but not of the world. And so we need wisdom. The third thing we need to do when we are persecuted. What to do? We need to be smart. Sometimes we flee, sometimes we stay. The third thing is you need to depend on the shepherd. So we are sheep. We have no forms of self-defense. We need to be cunning. We need to sometimes flee. But most importantly, we need to depend on the shepherd. Notice verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So we depend. 
we turn to the shepherd to lead us, to guide us, to give us the thoughts, to give us the words. Jesus says, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. We, we remember Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, a disciple of Jesus, was just about to be stoned to death. He was martyred for his faith. And just, he, he was forced on the spot to share his faith. And we have that magnificent sermon of Stephen in Acts 7. I have no doubt God the Holy Spirit was leading and guiding him and giving him the words. Last Saturday, we had uh, Melvin Tinker here from the UK. He's an Anglican uh, chaplain, pastor, not chaplain, but pastor in the UK. And because of his stand on, on, on LGBT, uh, he has been persecuted. He's been persecuted by the establishment, by BBC, by Parliament. Uh, when the media came to interview him, I have no doubt that God the Holy Spirit gave him the words gave him the answers in that kind of context. Probably I've, I've only experienced that once, I think. Um, about two years ago, uh, we, were, we were charged, our school, Christchurch Preparatory School, we were charged by the South African Human Rights Commission for an abuse of human rights. And uh, the issue was that we are a Christian school, we're a voluntary association, so we have a certain legal structure, and if you join this voluntary association, one of the parents needs to be a practicing Christian. That is the structure of the school, and there are various reasons for that. And we had a family from another religion wanting to place their child in the school. And so we say to them, here are the terms, the conditions for joining this voluntary association. And obviously they did not fit into that. And so they took us to the South African Human Rights Commission because we turned down their application. And um, so, so we had to appear on a certain day and... Um, I, I'm not sure for what reason, but I told our school's lawyer that I didn't want him to go, I would go. And um, so I went, and, um, and uh, it's a big occasion, you being uh, uh, charged with abusing human rights. Um, and I didn't feel anything special or anything of that nature. I prepared myself with the principal of the school, David Bell, who's a wonderful principal, and we presented our case, we answered the questions, and we won the case on theological grounds. It wasn't so much legal grounds, it was theological grounds. Now, as I look back to that, and I didn't feel anything special, as I said, but I do wonder whether in our preparation and our thinking, it wasn't God, the Holy Spirit, leading us and guiding us helping us to defend our school. Um, so, there we go. There's persecution from the world. Quickly, persecution from the family. I've got five minutes. Not only will the world persecute you, but strangely, your family will persecute you. So have a look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Now, we may find that very, very strange, but if you're a Christian living in a Muslim country, that is, that it would probably happen quite often. 
Verse 34, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So for us to understand what Jesus is saying, let me just clarify what he is not saying. So he is not saying that we should proactively be the cause of conflict and division in our families. He's not saying that. He's not saying we are not to love and to respect and to honor our parents, our elders, our siblings, our, our children. He is not justifying us being rude or offensive or obnoxious or uncaring or unloving to our family. He is not saying that he has come specifically to poison family relationships. What he is saying is, if you are a follower of Jesus, your first loyalty, your first allegiance, your first authority is Christ. And so when there is a conflict, and it doesn't happen uh, every day, but when there is a conflict between your loyalty to to Christ and your loyalty to your parents or children or siblings, well then obviously Christ comes first. See, those who don't trust in Christ oppose Christ and there's conflict. Now many of you have told, many, many of you have told me over the years how true verse 36 is. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, for some of our households, one person becomes a Christian and then someone else becomes a Christian, and uh, Christ has brought great love and unity into that family, and we thank God. Isn't that wonderful? But in other families, it's just the opposite. You become a Christian and they turn against you. Many of you have told me that. You won't join in their normal activities, their norm normal sort of drunken parties. Uh, perhaps you won't attend uh, the slaughter of animals to the Amadlozi, and so they turn against you. Or it may be even less dramatic. You just know that since you became a Christian, you're an outsider in the family. You hear stories behind your back. They don't include you because you're a Christian. And Jesus says, don't be surprised if even your family turns against you, not just the world and the media, but your family. Great surprises, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, it's quite strange then. I mean, it's most surprising what Jesus says because Isaiah tells us that Jesus will be the Prince of Peace. But what Isaiah is talking about is that the primary peace Jesus comes to bring is peace between us and God. Sadly, those who oppose Christ may well turn against you. And so Christ coming into your family has not taken away division, it has intensified division. Because those who don't, those who oppose Christ may well hate you. And Jesus says that's part of the territory, don't be surprised. It's not as if the plan has gone wrong. It's not as if you haven't followed all the steps no, that's part of the territory. Well, let me close. Two reasons why we 
why we pay the cost. The first is because of the one who's speaking. The one who's speaking is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who has authority over the wind and the waves. We saw that last week. Authority over evil spirits and Satan. Authority over sin and death. Authority over, over sickness. He's the one who gave his life to rescue us from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Why do we follow him? Because of his great love, his amazing grace towards sinners like you and me. So in thankfulness, the longing of our hearts is to follow him. Here's the Savior. Here's the one who has reconciled me with God. Here's the one who's dealt with my self-image and my guilt and my shame and my sin and my future and my death. Why wouldn't I follow this one? The second reason we pay the cost is because of eternity, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think that would be of great, great comfort to someone who is facing death, perhaps even today. Don't fear the one who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. No, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body, which is God. Verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. There's a heaven to be gained, there's a hell to be avoided. We are to live in the light of eternity, and that's why we pay the cost. Ed Welsh wrote a great book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a great book. The subtitle is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and Fear of Man. But it does expose the fact that too often we fear man rather than fearing God, which is really what this is about. Who are we going to fear? Fear man or fear God? So too often we fear man's rejection, and so we let God down. Too often we long for someone's approval, sometimes unhealthily so, rather than the approval of God. Too often we depend on someone's affirmation instead of God's affirmation. So Ed Welch is writing about when people are big and God is small, and Ed Welch is saying we need to fear God more than we fear man. So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple... Your first loyalty, your first allegiance is me. And there is a great, great joy in that. There are great, great rewards in that. But it's not without cost. No pain, no gain. Don't be surprised. Jesus has warned us. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, we, once again we pray that you will forgive us where we have feared men and women more than God. Forgive us when we have looked for affirmation and approval from men and women instead of God. Forgive us, Lord, all of us, when we've let you down, when we, when we kept quiet, when we should have spoken. And, Lord, we've all been there, so please forgive us. And, Father, will you help us 
to be godly, loving brothers, sisters, employers, employees who are true to Christ and yet are willing to pay the cost for belonging to Christ. Father, help us to, to, to be your disciples wherever you've placed us. Lord, you've placed us all in different places, and so we pray for wisdom to know how to handle those relationships, those family relationships, those work relationships. Lord, we really, really do need your wisdom and your spirit so much. So will you help us and guide us and lead us? Help us to reflect on your word so that our lives may more and more uh, follow the instructions of Christ. And you may use us wherever you've placed us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.